Welcome to episode 906 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Rodeo John, we are now on holiday. We're on holiday, yeah. alrighty. Yep. Summer yep. over here for you guys in Northern Hemisphere, and it is pumping. Boxing day today. Boxing day. Yep. Nice. What do you do on Boxing Day? <laughs> we, we are pre-recording this beforehand, but um, just be active. We don't, and on our holidays, we basically go to the beach. Do, well, no, we'll do some exercise in the morning. Go to the beach. Go for a wander. Chill out. Read books. It's not much happening. It's just a good relaxing place to we be. We might be at the bowls club. The bowls club, yeah, nice. because in Arrowtown, I'm in Arrowtown like for Christmas a, Day. A bit of bowls. I spent half day on uh, my family and I fly to Arrowtown, and then Ken Reed, Joe's Joe's dad, was a big bowler, and he passed mm-hmm. away a couple of years ago. And I'm thinking I, I might suggest this that we do a, a Ken Reed annual, mm-hmm. and because when he was around, every Boxing Day we go play bowls. See, I think is bowls just a Commonwealth sport because I don't know if American listeners will know no. what lawn bowls is. No, I don't think they would. You know, no. It's definitely Commonwealth. Because when you think of the World Championships, it's a Commonwealth countries. Mm, so com- if you don't know what lawn bowls is, you, 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 Americans would think of temp and bowling. Mm-hmm. Well, lawn bowls, you're out on the lawn, but it's a, it's a, you're basically one small ball and you put it about 15, 20 metres down the other end and then you get eight balls and the whole idea is each person gets a go and how close can you get it to the white ball and you get points based on how many of your balls are closer to. But the and, balls are weighted, so it's quite skillful. And they go, you know, they go curved. So there's one side's heavier than the other and you've got to curve it around towards. When you think about it, it's really, stupid <laughs> oh it's a great game it's huh? a great game yeah. but like if you had, had no idea you're looking at it, you're going this is just yeah. a weird thing it's a real retired person sport in New Zealand yeah. it's, it's huge like, great. in Christchurch I think we've got like 15-20 clubs mm. you know and, and massive in Australia yeah huge and it's great sport mm. yeah so I'll probably be playing bowls there you go mm. so what we're doing in these shows over the Christmas period is we're basically just putting together some interviews and we'll try to make it an hour so an interviews of the early days of the podcast. So I don't, I haven't put it together yet. So you'll kind of figure out as we work through the interviews. So here, I don't know how many interviews is going to be. Depends on how long they are. But I'm going to train about for an hour. So here are some interviews from the early days of the podcast. Okay, so um, in this month's show, we have a great interview with a guy called Mike Plant. Do you want to talk a little bit about it, mate? So Mike is one of the forefathers of our sport. He was there when it very very first started in San Diego. He was the first man to really, or first reporter to really cover the sport in any sort of serious fashion and really just help mould those early days and give our sport a little bit of coverage and when the sport did really start to grow in terms of the USAT series and and for it to become professional he was there going sort of side by side the sport um, having good relationships with the the professional athletes profiling them and really just bringing the sport or helping the sport into the professional era he was also one of the announcers at um, in Kona in the in the early years so, so calling people into the finish and in general, he's just got some bloody good stories about um, about the sport in the early days, and just a, a good thinker of the sport, and and something I think we we owe a lot to him is is helping, sort of, I don't know, foster that that 
the early media and, and some of the publications he, he was involved in ended up spawning into what are the biggest um, triathlon publications. Yeah, yeah totally. Like, I don't want to kind of, you know, talk too much about the interview before we, you listen to it, but you definitely get a sense of the importance of these guys behind the scenes actually pushing our sport forward when it really wasn't a sport, you know, mm. when it really was just some kind of niche thing. It was guys like Mike who really kind of pushed it to the real world to say, hey, this is something that's happening that's quite big and you'll kind of get a sense for this in the interview, but it's, it's a really great interview. We'll, we'll have a bit of talk about our thoughts afterwards. Okay, so here's Mike Plant and uh, yeah, enjoy the interview. Righty-ho, so for the guy, for everybody who listened last uh, month when we had uh, Scott Tinley on the show, um, he yep. talked about a variety of different things and, and one of the people that he talked about was... Uh, Mike Plant, and this is yeah. a guy, and this is Mike we've got on the line here today, and uh, this was also endorsed by Scott Molina. He said he's going to be a great guy to have on. He was arguably you know the first person to sort of seriously cover the sport of triathlon in the states, and in, in terms of a um, being a reporter on it and. Scott Tilley also said that he's got the best collection of the early triathlon pictures around. He's the author of Iron Will and also the history of, um, which is a history of triathlon and also triathlon going the distance. Uh, and more recently, we've just seen, got Matt Bevan's browsing through a magazine here, three, three Go Triathlon, a new magazine out, and there's a whole bunch of Mike's pictures in there. So welcome along to the show, um, Mike Plant. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Yeah. Mike, one of the big reasons I wanted, I was really keen to get you on is with, with this, this this podcast, we're trying to get a sense of really what it was like in, in the early days for triathlon, and, and then we're going to start sort of working our way forward. And, you know, we know that the first triathlon was held in, in 1974, and and it was it was sponsored, I see, by the San Diego Track Club. And, and one of your early roles um, sounded like it was working with the as the, the editor of the San Diego Running News. So I was wondering if you could sort of tell us what it what that San Diego Track Club was, was all about, and how this sort of first triathlon sort of became into existence. Well, it's really kind of funny because uh, the track club obviously was pr primarily focused on, on running. Um, I didn't really get to San Diego until 1978, which, uh, which was years after you know, what people say was the first triathlon. And, and I don't really think there ever was a first triathlon per se. Um, really, the, the track club was looking, or some of the people in the track club were looking for ways to sort of just vary their training. Uh, and and they did so with with what we what became known as as triathlon, but it was kind of a haphazard thing. Um, it was all held on Fiesta Island, which was a um, uh, really kind of a, kind of a, a bleak looking um, little island where they actually uh, they actually uh, 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 was kind of a dump. <laughs> uh, and 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 that was no, I'm serious. In the center of it, I mean, they they dumped like uh, like sludge refuge, you know. But it was the it was the place out of the way where they could hold running races. And so a lot of races were held on Mission Bay, which is where Fiesta Island is. And, 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 and so all of us that ran in San Diego ran literally thousands of miles around Fiesta Island in events and training and stuff. And, and the track club used Fiesta Island 
in, in Mission Bay to swim and bike and run, as just, like I said, just, just sort of uh, variations on the theme of, of running. They were looking for places um, you know, to do, and things to do that, that broke up the training. And uh, since San Diego, it is what it is, with it's full of water and, 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 and nice places to bike. Mission Bay Park is a great place to run. That became a natural venue for this thing. So it really was very informal. Uh, it really wasn't until 78, 79, 1980, where you started to see more formal events come in. Um, so I think that uh, uh, 1974 was probably the day, you know, the, the year that Jack Johnston and, and, uh, and those guys kind of first put these things on. But they weren't very official. They weren't the kind of thing that you even had official winners on, to tell you the truth. Hmm. So it was basically a bunch of guys going down and saying, right, some fun. we're going to swim out to that, that point there, swim across there, we're going to bike to... X, Y, Z and back and then we're just going to run around here and we're going to do it as a really hard workout um, rather than it being a formal race per se. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and the chance of t- you know, 20 or 30 guys all doing the same course on the same day was probably very minimal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was kind of a little bit of a free-for-all. And interestingly enough, as triathlon came on in the later years, um, uh, there were some folks in the track club that I dealt with um, that were not all that happy about the emphasis on triathlon, which is really funny. So the organization that actually gave birth to the sport was not really receptive when the sport became more of a sport and actually was beginning to be covered. And uh, I, I got some pushback on that later years which is kind of funny so, so where did it all start for you like um you said you came across to to san diego you know around that sort of 78 79 period what sort of drew you into the track club was it was it was it a job for you or were you sort of editing that news um as a voluntary role what sort of drew you into athletics and, and also triathlon yeah, well, I was an athlete all my life. My dad was a, a, a professional baseball player, minor league baseball player in the U.S. Um, in the U.S., he was a phys ed instructor for a long time, taught gymnastics. So I was a gymnast and a springboard diver primarily and a swimmer in high school. Uh, we ran before it was popular to run. My dad uh, was, I don't know if any of the audience remember, the Canadian Air Force 5BX plan for fitness. It's one of the, one of the best little pamphlets on, on workout. It sort of presaged a lot of the, 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 you know, the contemporary stuff that they're doing online right now and uh, and we got that they used to work out with that and it, it featured a run at the end and all these different calisthenics so I was a I was a really fit guy from the beginning with swim bike and, and run background I played baseball in high school so I was pretty much a, a pretty much of a, a of a jock uh, you know from from the beginning um, I um, I was never enamored of the of the weather back east uh, in Connecticut where I grew up. So I ended, uh, you know, where I grew up. So I ended up up in San Diego and ended back in San Diego. I was always a uh, kind of a budding writer, and I would took a very early interest in photography. I learned uh, basically self taught photographer in uh, in Vietnam, where I was stationed uh, for a year and a half um, uh, during the war there. And uh, one of the nice things about being in Vietnam is you could buy cheap. Uh, electronic equipment, uh, both in the PXs and then also I took a trip uh, on R and R to Japan, where I where I bought ridiculously you know great equipment for stupidly low prices, and so I was pretty well equipped and taught myself, learned how to use the darkroom and all that kind of stuff. So when I came to San Diego. Um, I set up a little business called Sports Shots, which nobody remembers, and, and, and I was that guy that went out and took photographs of the finishers of the half marathons and man- marathons, and this was pre-electronic, so I used to get the color uh, uh, um, uh, contact sheets and cut out all the little pictures and paste them onto the, onto the little things and put them in envelopes and send them to all the competitors. And, and, really? and that, was, that, was a, yeah, that was an amazing thing before, uh, before you could do it digitally. And um, 
uh, I early on, because I was a runner and fit, I early on made contact with the con- with the track club and offered to do photography for them for free. And uh, and and that's really how it started. Um, it didn't take long before they realized that here's this guy that took pretty good photographs. That's an idiot. To, to, you know, is willing to work for nothing. <laughs> and I, I was willing to write for nothing and edit the newspaper for nothing and put the whole darn thing together because I'd had some experience. And uh, in that and. Um, and so for uh, you know maybe less than a year or so, I, I did all of their all of their newsletter. Uh, it wasn't very long after that that the president of the club, who became my business partner, said, "You know why the heck are we doing this for the track club? Um, let's 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 start a publication on our own." So it was the San Diego Track Club News, which then morphed, and the San Diego Track Club News was very happy to have this happen because suddenly the magazine wasn't costing them anything, mm-hmm. and it became their newsletter plus other things. So that was where that was where the San Diego Running News was born uh, in 1979, 80, right in that period where we put out our first issue, and uh, the next year in 1981 was when we covered our first triathlon, our first real triathlon for the first time, and you know, arguably, I don't want to claim anything that I'm not entitled to, but we were certainly one of the first, if not the first in the country, maybe in the world to actually cover triathlon as a, as a serious sport, as a sport that was actually up and coming, so that's kind of fun to look back on. So was was the scene in San Diego big enough? And your, I mean, I know it's a big big city, but that you could support a magazine. There was enough going on that you could come out with a magazine in, in your particular area. It was on a monthly basis. <laughs> it was it was pretty wild. Yes, it was on a monthly basis. Of course, the running community was huge, and and I wasn't specifically covering triathlon. I was covering running and triathlon, yep. uh, whatever passed for multi-sport in those days, and we, we covered some wild things. Um, and it was a newsprint publication. It got up to 54 pages long, which was in two sections, which is the longest we ever did. Um, and... Um, uh, uh, in those days, I, I wrote the whole paper. I mean, I would write up to 20,000 words a month. I did all the photography. I did all the illustration. I sold the ads. I put mm-hmm. together the ads, designed the ads, and worked with the, of course, again, pre-digital. It worked with uh, the, the, you know, the, the firm that actually put the paper together for me. And then got it printed and delivered all myself. I had a van, and I used to put 10,000 copies in the van, literally floor to ceiling, Passenger seat all the way to the back, where you couldn't see anything out. The van would be like, you know, like bumping off the wheel wells. Mm-hmm. It would be so heavy. And I drove all over San Diego and delivered this thing myself wow. uh, every month and uh, lost a couple of girlfriends along the way. Um, <laughs> you know, who would want to put up with that crap? Because there were a couple of all nighters in there. But really, it was the only way to get it done. So, you know, do you ask me if it supported um, a publication that supported a really stupid lifestyle for mm-hmm. a little while? until it actually did begin to support itself and we eventually hired a staff and 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 got three editions uh we eventually published three editions an Arizona edition an out Los Angeles edition and a San Diego edition and uh you know we we did okay um i was probably pretty stupid as a businessman back in those days and i wanted to put out a wonderful editorially correct ethically correct lots of editorial and we should have had a um, a much different advertising to editorial ratio so i don't think i was tremendously realistic but like so many things in 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 running and multi-sport and athletics you know it was more of a labor of love than anything where did that lead to that that um that news did it did it carry on did it get bought out or where did it lead to well, that's, a, that's an interesting little story. Uh, my <laughs> partner and I um, got a little bit sidewards. Um, he, um, we broke up. Um, I had by that time hired Bob Babbitt, 
mm-hmm. um, who some of your um, listeners yeah, will yeah. know, and, yeah. and Lois Schwartz, who, who did some marvelous photography. I actually taught Lois photography from scratch. She didn't know anything about it. She did some wonderful work, including the, a lot of the stuff that you see in Iron War and stuff. She did some, some marvelous photography. And of course, um, uh, and Bob and Lois stayed with my partner. He sold the publication. They had some terrible, um, you know, it was some difficult dealings there for a little bit. And that publication became Competitor Magazine, mm-hmm. um, which um, now in the United States has become quite a big deal. And the Competitor mm-hmm. Group owns just about everything, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the U.S. So there's a kind of a direct evolutionary line there from you know, my uh, driving all over San Diego in my van to, uh, you know, to now this, you know, this, this, uh, uh, this huge investment that, that people have made. So that's kind of fun. Yeah. So it did come to something. So, so, you know, you kind of went to San Diego around um, 78 and, you know, it was really a running club that would put on these kind of small multi-point events. You kind of said it around 98, that was when your, your magazine first published that kind of triathlete, triathlete article. What were you seeing happening when triathlete over that kind of very early period where it went from just a couple of guys kind of meeting up and doing these random courses to actually starting to become a bit more official? Well, in the, you know, in the early days, it was pretty ad hoc. Um, um, I, I remember, uh, well, in fact, I was just looking at some photographs, some old photographs of, a, of an event called the Rusty Pelican in Newport Beach, California, where literally the transition area was this mob of people and people were coming in on their bikes. And I have pictures of like mom handing the baby to dad <laughs> so she could get on the bike and, and run. And, and that was um, fairly uh, typical of the way things were. Transitions there, transition, transition areas where people, Mothers, fathers, sons, wives, husbands, holding bikes, holding running shoes, um, towels, you know, all sorts of stuff. In fact, I remember in 1980 uh, uh, covering a, an event called the Chucks Triathlon on Fiesta Island of all places in San Diego. And Ned Overend, who later became a world champion mm. in mountain bike, uh, running through the transition area and people realizing that he was doing the whole triathlon himself rather than what everybody else was doing was a relay. And there were only about four guys in the race that were doing it um, themselves and hearing this gasp go up like, oh, my God. And uh, that was less than an Olympic distance race at those times. So, it, it, you know, like it was, it was a, it was a really wild um, West kind of, uh, you know, U.S. type of um, uh, chaotic environment. And it really wasn't until the advent of the U.S. Triathlon Series in 1982, uh, which I was fortunate enough to be part of, um, that that put you know wave starts there and bike racks and some sense of organization uh, to the sport. And that that really was the um, was the centerpiece of what I consider to be the growth of the modern triathlon from that 1982 period on through so, the U.S. Triathlon Series. So, do you recall what was the first USA? triathlon race and and how that sort of went and and whether it did get much coverage well it it it's it it was interesting because um a very very good friend of mine who's since become my friend um uh, one of my best friends uh, and my wife and and a fellow by the name of carl thomas were actually very instrumental early on uh jim curl who was in the triathlon hall of fame here in the u.s the usat hall of fame was um was pitching this. My wife tells, tells, still tells a story. She walked in the office and here's this crazy guy with his arms going everywhere saying, you know, this is going to happen here and this is going to happen here. And, and uh, she was an account executive at that time for Speedo International. Her boss was the vice president of Speedo uh, was Carl Thomas. And Carl somehow saw that this could do something and decided the Speedo was going to 
sponsor this triathlon series that Jim Curl had invented. Um, my wife at the time was working for Armin Kintayan, who is now a, a, uh, an NBC uh, sports commentator and wrote for Sports Illustrated for a while, so he went on to do big things. And that was in 1981, and, and Jim Curl came to San Diego a little bit later when the plans formed up and asked me if I would do the program for the series. I refused him because I didn't see there was any money in it, but uh, I remember very well, and he remembers very well, a very tough run we took in 1981, sort of trying to test each other out to see who was going to go fastest and last longest. But, um, but that, was, um, uh, that was sort of the, um, the beginning of that. Uh, uh, they used some of my foot photographs of the first ad. Uh, the first ads, uh, Scott Tinley and his brother um, uh, Jeff were, were part of that program. I know Scott was a big, was a big deal there and that's, um, that was kind of the, the genesis of all of that. Um, Speedo sponsorship. So when it started, Carl was a pretty good, pretty good salesman. Speedo was a sponsor and very early on Bud Light and Hauser Busch came on as a sponsor in 1982. They were actually the first title sponsor of the race mm. um, and they saw this um, as a way to introduce a light beer as a beer for uh, more healthy people. It didn't make any sense at all if you thought about it. But um, obviously, Triathlon was very happy to get the sponsorship, and Bud Light said, well, hell, it's a marketing platform. Let's use it. And uh, that went on for a decade. You know? How did you get the – you know, like Bud Light, you know, you know, that's a massive brand in America, and, and Triathlon is this hock little sport which hasn't really got any organization. How did you, how'd you get, how'd that happen? It's a really good. Um, it's a really good question. I think from the beginning, people kept thinking that there was big money in triathlon. I have no idea why, <laughs> and I think to this day we wonder. I remember when IMG and Barry Frank and NBC Television was getting into Nice, and there, there kept there was a there was a, a long series, a long a line of people that 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 saw gold in triathlon and 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 jumped in trying to make a lot of money. Um, very few of them were ever very successful. I think with Bud Light it was relatively modest, and they thought they could use this this emerging sport as simply um, part of what represented a, a, a and I'll put this in big quotes a healthy brand. Mm. Um, and that was the goal. And uh, obviously, Bud Light was the first sponsor, first title sponsor of the Ironman in Kona. Um, so they pretty much owned the sport of triathlon in the U.S. for, like I say, almost a decade. And pretty strange. Did it did it go well? Like that first season was it was it everything you'd hoped for and more? Or, or how did the races sort of pan out? Was it was it, was it chaos that progressively got less chaotic, or what was it like? A mixture. A, a mixture, and it really depended on the race. There were some wonderful stories. I mean, because this was all being being sort of cobbled up at, on the fly. Uh, my wife handled all the PR, and it was probably more instrumental than anybody in the world at at publicizing this to the general media. She worked very hard. She's very good in public relations and marketing, so they usually got pretty good press coverage. As a matter of fact, when she and I worked together at the races, my job would be to uh, make sure that the press was well educated in the sport and we went out on the bike course in pickup trucks jam packed with photographers she worked very hard to get all the local media sometimes the national media out there and we would have 10, 12 photographers packed in a, so tight they couldn't move in the back of a pickup truck. And I always had a good driver, and I'd lean over the cab. I'd be standing up and back, leaning over, telling the guy where to go. And we would get them close-up pictures of Melina and Tinley and Dave Scott and all these guys and all the best women, Colleen Cannon and, and the Puntos twins and all those people. 
And we worked very hard to educate the press. And we, we had some absolutely Mr. Told wild rides out there in these fresh trucks. I mean, it was just insane. There's no way you could do it now. Uh, there's absolutely no way they would allow something like this on, on the course. It was, it was at times just absolutely dangerous. But, but um, that's what led us to, um, um, to, uh, to, to cover the sport so well and, and really to establish around the country a whole cadre of journalists who were actually covering triathlon as a serious sport in some of the major newspapers in Chicago and Fort Lauderdale, Florida and all these places. Um, the races themselves were remarkably well organized um, from the standpoint of what, um, you know, what was, what was, uh, uh, what was the state of the art at the time. Uh, but there were some, there were, as you might expect, some absolutely ridiculous disasters because when you went into these cities, you were dealing with race directors in the local venue who could be trained to some respect, but didn't know what they were expecting at all. Mm. And uh, I remember there was one great story, one of the very best stories at all. Jim Curl, was the, he was standing on the lifeguard tower, and they were in Atlanta on a very foggy morning in Atlanta and on a lake. And, uh, and uh, you could barely see the buoys at all. Just there were, You only see one or two buoys. And as, the, as, the, as it got closer to the race and people were on the beach waiting to go, the fog lifted a little bit, and then the fog lifted a little bit, and then the fog lifted a little bit more, and there were no more buoys and Jim Curl turned to the race director and, and had this terrible realization and he turned to the race director and he said how long is a meter and she looked at him and she says about a foot isn't it the swim was about a third as long as it was supposed to be oh, no. as a result of that when Tinley and Molina got out of the water and got on their bikes the park gates weren't open yet etc etc so there were all these wonderful stories about you know <laughs> learning how to put on triathlon on the fly but by and large uh, we had some they had some magnificent races and uh, really the Tinley Molina matchup Dave Scott occasionally and of course Mark Allen first became uh, you know a, a, a force at, in, in the USTS and then later on Mike Pig and then all the women the Puntos Twins and Kirsten Hansen and Aaron Baker and all people the US triathlon series in the US was really the center of the sport for quite a long time so, so Ironman comes into the piece of in early 80s as well you know you're obviously covering um, the you know the triathlon in general when, when Ironman first came on did you guys think well what is this like how did that come into the picture well you know I mean I was one of those nuts that read the article in Sports Illustrated about the 1979 race with Tom Warren uh, that Barry McDermott wrote and, and I, w I remember very well my dad showing it to me in Sports Illustrated and while everybody else was appalled I was one of those few people that went wow this is amazing mm -hmm. I, I just thought it was, it was terrific in 1979 I met Tom Warren and actually covered the first multi-sport race I ever did his, his Tugs Tavern Run Swim Run um, the Ironman was still thought in 19... Um, 80 and 81 to be something that um, really wasn't taken on very lightly. I mean, there were still there were still edges of people that thought it was risky. I remember writing an article about a guy who was going over there that year, and he did a half Ironman just to test himself out. And and uh, they were talking about him wandering around, senseless, dehydrated, mumbling to himself, wondering how in the world he was ever going to finish the Ironman. So, really, during that 1980. 81 period, um, uh, especially 81, the first year on the Big Island, where they were still, still stopping people midstream and weighing them during the bike course to see if they had lost 10% of their body weight. And if they had, they would, throw, you know, they, would, they would disqualify them from the event, the year that John Howard won the race. So during those early years, um, Ironman was still seen as something that um, was irresistible to a handful five, six, seven hundred people, but uh, still was looked on as something absolutely insane. And it really wasn't until that 
that 82 race with Julie Moss, uh, where she fell and Kathleen McCartney won, that, that people started to see this and television started to see this as a bona fide um, athletic event, something that, that was extremely dramatic. What about, you know, you, we, you, you mentioned there the Julie Moss um, story, and I think everybody um, who is, knows Iron Man is probably familiar with that story, but were there other, any other turning points? You know, you've, you've said USA T series, when that first started, that was a turning point. Julie Moss, turning point. Are there any other sort of key turning points that you, in the early years, maybe that related to the media as well, where things really started to ramp up quickly? Um, well, I think, um, uh, interestingly enough, uh, the, the, within the, within the U S triathlon series in the, in the domestic U S here on the mainland, um, the stories that really seem to get the most attention and that were turning points for the sport in terms of its popularity were more the human interest stories than the top athletes, than mm-hmm. the top performances, because the sport the media didn't really understand uh, the, the sport and there wasn't enough money in it really to make them stand up and take notice. Uh, it was really a small group of journalists that actually covered the race. And it was still, it was still uh, covered as kind of a, you know, an anomaly. But I remember that we had, um, we had a guy in the U.S., Gary Clark, who was the first heart transplant patient, for instance, to ever do a triathlon. He got tremendous coverage, and I think that was um, probably a turning point here in the U.S. in terms of raising awareness for the sport. Um, the, um, the Dave Scott and Scott Tinley battles um, at Ironman you know, and the USTS with Molina and Tinley were, were always big deal. I think, um, um, I think Scott's, Dave Scott's dominance during that period was probably something um, that, was of, that was of great note. Um, um, and then, and then you know, Iron War, and then the year before that, I think it was the year before that, with Paula when she finished 11th overall and, and established herself probably as one of the greatest you know, female endurance athletes ever in the history of the world. And I still don't think she's gotten full credit for that. Uh, you know, those are the things that stand out, stand out in my mind. Um, uh, well, well, I think... Go ahead. Oh, just with the human interest thing, you know, because I know John gets frustrated with the amount, even to this day, you know, how the pro, especially in Ironman in particular, you know, the, the, the way it's packaged is very much human interest story. And, uh, yeah. and you know, you watch your Kona coverage and, you know, it's kind of like here's some stories about some people and there's a race happening as well for some pros. And, you know, obviously being in the media, the, certain areas sell a product and obviously human interest story in triathlon in general is a good one to sell. What are your thoughts on that, you know, as, as an overall perspective, you know, being a media guy who obviously had a pretty big influence on the sport and how it was presented, and also you were obviously trying to motivate, have motivation to make the sport bigger. What was the kind of, did, was there a conflict as a media guy to go, do we want to have, what, what's that balance that's right? Well, I don't know that there was a conflict in me because I, I was always a pragmatist about it. Um, if you wanted the sport to grow, you needed to attract an audience, and you couldn't just attract an audience of people that, that, of, 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 uh, of fanatics, of people that love the sport. Um, and, and I've done some speaking on this to other groups as well. You, you, you're always going to get those people. The people that love the sport, they're there. There's nothing you can do to drive them away. But there are only so many of them. And I think that um, in any business, and, and certainly triathlon is, is a good one, the, 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 the parts about the sport that uh, appeal to the person that really can't understand a guy um, uh, 
somebody like Paula Newby Fraser or somebody who races, uh, you know, who runs a marathon at the end of the day in Kona at 5.45 pace, that's pretty hard to understand for most people. Um, but what they do understand is the, is, the, is the housewife that goes out and stumbles through a marathon. Uh, it's sad to say, as a purist, you'd say, well, gee, that's ridiculous. That's not really the sport. But in fact, for most people it is, and that's how the sport gets publicized. Uh, going back to Gary Clark, this heart transplant patient, we might call the Boston Globe and talk about Scott Tinley or, or Dave Scott in the old days till we were blue in the face and not get anything. We tell, a, we tell somebody this is a heart transplant patient and talk about his story. Um, um, he was the front page of the Boston Globe. He was on radio, television. Every city we went in, he was a front page story. We could never place a triathlon like that. So if you were to say that's not a valid story because it's not a pure triathlon story, then really I think you did the sport. A disservice. Mm. Um, I'll tell you a story. When I was when we brought the U.S. Triathlon Series back for Quintana Roo in, in 1998, I think it was the first year we came back. And Bally Total Fitness was our title sponsor, and uh, I worked with the senior vice president John uh, Wildman on the on the event. And and uh, I was really proud to have him as a title sponsor. And we were at Oceanside for the national championship one year, and and uh, I I looked up at the crowd in the morning and I thought this is great look at all these people and John looked up at the crowd and he said we got to figure out how to get more people out to these races <laughs> that was the sponsor <laughs> and so the next year um, I committed you know uh, a, a terrible crime uh, as far as what some some of the people uh, uh, you know involved in the sport were I actually went and signed the Baywatch television series to a sponsorship in the series oh, wow. and we got a couple of bikini models and a lifeguard and we gave away authentic Baywatch lifeguard jackets and um but we were able to use that in media, and we were able to attract a crowd of people who wanted to see Baywatch girls in, in bikinis and, and get a chance to win a Baywatch lifeguard jacket. They couldn't care less about triathlon, but, you know, it exposed them to the sport. It let them see what it was all about, and, and I know that a certain percentage of them said, this is pretty neat. <laughs> you know, so I think that um, I think the purism is dangerous when you're trying to, when you're trying to grow something. You've know? mm. you got to be careful. What about you know these days when you go to go to many of the events, um, Ironman events, um, part of the US series or, or anywhere in the world, you know it is a really it's a festival day. You have um, good events, you have lots going on. The music's pumping. You've got great MCs rolling, um, and it is you know it's it's a big time. Was it like that? And were they create in the eighties? Were they creating that um, sort of festival atmosphere and, and and a real sort of party at the race? I think we were. I think we were trying. Um, I think there were. Um, it was difficult at seven o'clock in the morning to get someone. It was hard <laughs> enough to get the media out there, for heaven's sakes, let alone get spectators out. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because a lot of wives and husbands were rolling over in bed, going, "Jesus, you got to be crazy. Go do your race. I'm staying here." <laughs> um, so I think it was a challenge. I think it still is a challenge. Um, it's a lot better now than it was. But I'll tell you, back in uh, when I started first first announcing at the Ironman in Hawaii. Uh, I think I started in 1987, as I recall. And I remember going over there for the first time in 1982. I met a very good friend at the finish line, and we were standing there at midnight at the last. And they had a couple of radio announcers at the time who were absolutely terrible. And it was raining, and there wasn't a soul there at the finish line. There wasn't a soul. There were like just the people finishing at midnight. Yeah. One of the most dramatic parts of the race. And when I, when I took over as announcer... Uh, one of the things that, I, that I'm proudest of in the sport, that I, I, that I hold the most dear of all the things I did, is I was determined that we were going to get a big crowd at the finish line. Uh, 
And in fact, I mean, I talked to the pros who, who are our good friends. We went all over the country competing with them. We had, we gradually over a period of years uh, built that finish line with great music. I remember we used Aretha Franklin was our theme song for the first couple of years and got people doing the wave and we built that crowd at the finish line and created that party. Um, and um, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a very difficult thing. The Ironman, the island is full of nothing but triathletes. I think elsewhere it's harder to do. Uh, mm. In the early days, there were, it was pretty bleak at times. It was pretty bleak. Even at the Ironman, it was bleak. So um, where, where does Mike Riley sort of fit into this? Because he's considered you know, the voice of Ironman. He calls everybody in. Were, were you in before he started or, or was he there at a similar time to yourself? Well, <laughs> this is actually funny. Uh, I announced over there for four years. The first two years, um, I invited a guy by the name of Mike Adamley, who did, later did the Ironman. He was a television announcer and a former professional football player in the U.S., and he did some television commentary, so he came over and helped me. And then the next two years, I invited Mike Riley over to help out. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so Mike was, um, Mike was my sidekick for the first two years, and then the Ironman series was purchased. Um, and uh, I went away, and Mike stayed. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to think about that, you know. But he was—he does a great job. Mike's a great guy. I've known him for a long time, uh, since way, way back in the in the late '70s and, and early '80s here in San Diego. So, he's a good guy, and he does a fantastic job. I don't—I don't know that my my voice would have held up that long. So. <laughs> Oh, you know, like you're obviously in the early stages of, you know, this whole evolution of what's happening in there, but tell us some of the stories that you look back on fondly, maybe about some of the pros, you know, like when you think back of, of that time, what are some of the kind of the highlights in your mind that you have around some of the experiences that you've had? Well, I think, you know, traveling around the country with the, with the U.S. Triathlon Series um, was, was, pretty, was a pretty amazing experience. I started out with the series just covering it as a journalist um, and seeing um, – uh, you know the athletes come up through the ranks. Uh, I remember very well. Um, so that so that so traveling around the around the the country and getting to know these people as very good friends. Uh, I look back now. I go to a race and I see people who who I realize are some of the best friends I ever made in my life. Mm-hmm. I maybe haven't seen them in 20 years, but guys like Jimmy Riccatello and Scott Tenley, with whom I've I've stayed very close. Um, um, some of the I haven't seen Kirsten Hansen in a long time, but some of these people we saw every week. We watched them under extreme conditions. Um, I wrote about them. Um, I interviewed them at length, and that that sense of camaraderie among the people in the sport who were making it grow um, was. I don't think will ever leave me, and I don't. I didn't realize at the time how important it was to me until I left the sport and then began sort of coming back with my current business, sort of getting reengaged with some of those people. Um, that was that 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 to me is something that I will hold dear uh, forever. When I hear Scott Molina saying nice things about me, uh, I, I have to say that it just you know it's just it's it's really it's a really good feeling. Um, so that whole sense of of camaraderie was wonderful. And then, uh, you know, asked earlier about highlights. When you look back and you start going through the list of things, I remember Mark Allen's first big race in, at the Horny Toad, this really obscure race in San Diego called the Horny Toad Triathlon. Horny Toad. And, <laughs> yeah, the Horny Toad Triathlon was a half, a half Ironman distance, and, and Mark Allen had nothing. He had not, I, I, it wasn't his first race, but it was pretty close to it. He'd never shown anything other than, in fact, some talent. And he beat the crap out of Molina and Tinley. 
and and uh, and and suddenly he was you know he was Mark Allen there he was and um, uh, so to watch these people emerge uh, from nothing um, and uh, and move on uh, through you know really kind of greatness uh, to watch a guy like Scott Tinley who was such a great triathlon now become triathlete now become a you know a PhD in literature. Um, I'm I'm proud of these guys. I'm glad to have known all these folks. I mean, that's that, I, that's really to me the highlight. It's more of a um, instead of the individual things, it's more of a composite feeling, you know. So as a, as a um, reporter, you know, Bevan and I, when we started these podcasts, we just sort of make it up as we go along and, and sort of learning yeah. as as we go. What um, for you, you know, when you're writing about a particular athlete or a particular race, and you're did you have any bad experiences where you maybe wrote some negative things about bad athletes, and did they ever sort of pull you up about that, or mm, how, how did you sort that of relationship? Yeah, how did you try to get that relationship when they were friends? But at the end of the day, if someone has a crap race, do you sort of pan around it, around it, or did you sort of go in there and say, you know, Molina got smashed out at a crap race, he looked terrible, or how did you sort of approach when people did, weren't going so well? Well, you know, it was interesting. I never ever ever once had a problem um, with the athletes. Um, I never had an athlete complain about an article. I tried to write candidly. I, I, I still um, think of myself as a journalist, even though I'm not working in the field right now. Um, but I'm very, um, I think that the whole idea of journalism and, and ethics in journalism and writing what's true is really important. Um, the athletes, I never got pushed back from. Um, what was interesting is I did... Um, piss a lot of people off in the sport <laughs> in writing about the sport and the politics and uh. the, the, that, that I approached um, head on and I made the difficult phone calls and I have people to this day uh, not, not many I, I, there, there are one or two that probably still wouldn't speak to me if they saw me on the street um, because they felt that I had uh, transcended the boundaries of what the, trioth- you know, the sport could handle I, I had a, a publication in the late uh, 1980s called The Plant Report. And it was what would have been now a blog. Yep. And it was about uh, 5,000, 6,000 words every month. <clears throat> and I covered everything. I covered the business of sport. Um, in fact, I remember being on the phone with Phil Breyers in New Zealand. Hmm, yeah. um, the race was, the Ironman New Zealand was taking place on Sunday and it was still Saturday in the U.S. and I was covering the race live. It was great. Um, I, had, I had subscribers in about 20 countries and uh, we sent this thing out by hand. We printed all the hard copies and actually put it in an envelope and sent it out with a stamp on it uh, in those days. And, um, and I wrote some tough stories. I wrote some stories about um, um, uh, people that were doing things that were kind of nefarious in the sport and cutting corners and, and not paying money. And, and um, uh, that, was, that earned me some um, – well, I'll, t- I'll tell you, there, I, won't, I won't name names, but when uh, – when one of the triathlon publications was sold many years ago, the guy called me, who's the publisher, and asked me to come to Colorado to edit the publication. He wanted, it, he wanted me to be the, the senior editor, the managing editor. Um, and I was actually interested in it. And I started looking at homes in Colorado, <laughs> actually. Yep. And uh, he called me back about a week later. And he said, uh, I can't hire you. He said, because the contract stipulates that... <laughs> Specifically, you cannot edit this publication. Wow. And that was because of a, of I, I had written a, a couple of articles in Triathlon Magazine, Triathlete Magazine at the time, about 
how the Federation was in bed with another organization and um, to the detriment of a lot of people. And it was a two-part series, and it was very hard-edged investigative journalism. Um, and I uncovered a lot of bad stuff that really shouldn't have been going on. It probably was illegal. Um, and uh, there were folks that never forgave me for that. So I think that um, I was able to take a principled stance, um, took some hits for it, but I'm very proud of it. And I wouldn't do it any other way. But as far as the athletes go, never heard a peep. I think, I think everybody respected the fact that I was doing the best I could. Do you think so. the sport lacks that, that depth of journalism now? Well, you know, look at what happened to Matt Fitzgerald with his book on mm. Iron War. Mm. Um, uh, I have a great amount of respect for Dave and, and for Mark. Uh, but that was a book that was um, the attempted to cover in a certain way. Um, and uh, Matt did his homework. I know he, he talked to me for, at length, and I know he talked to a lot of people. Um, and there was an expectation by some that, uh, that he would compensate the people he was writing about um, in return for their participation, which from a journalistic standpoint is ludicrous. Hmm. You wouldn't ask that. You would, hmm. you, you would immediately discount the book as a, as a, as a valid piece of journalism. So um, I, think, I think there are attempts to do that. Um, I think a lot of people would say it's unnecessary. Uh, but when you look at what's happened in other sports and cycling, with the drugs and you know, a lot of other things, I think that... I think that any sport could use um, good, hard-hitting journalism to keep itself honest and to keep itself from sliding, you know, into, uh, you know, uh, I mean, look what happened just in the U.S. On, in Penn State just recently. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying anything like that. Anything like that is happening in Trump, and believe me, I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't for a minute say that. But I am saying that I think the media in any sports arena – it's a good thing to have, and I would encourage uh, the journalists to be, um, you know, hard-hitting. And, and when they see something that, that, um, uh, that isn't right, I think they should write about it regardless of the consequences. And I think there's some of that. I think Matt is very good proof that uh, somebody's willing to, to step up and write something that's controversial. Um, you know, um, I, I didn't fact-check this book, so I don't know. I can't vouch for all of its accuracy. But I think it was a courageous thing to do. What about, you know, a big part of what you did was photography, and, and I don't know the first thing about photography. But you push what, a button. push a button, yeah. <laughs> point and shoot. <laughs> but what, what, what is it that makes a, a good, you know, sets a, 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 an average photographer apart from a, from a very good photographer? And, and it encapsulates what our sports is about too. Yeah, I, I think, first of all, you have to be, uh, this is going to sound a little bit silly, but I think you have to be a big fan of, of, of the sport that you're covering. I, I think you have to really, really work to understand and appreciate the little things. When I talked earlier about not being, about being pragmatic and, you know, trying to bring, you know, more people into the sport, when, as a photographer, you need to, you need to absolutely be a fanatic and you need to know what the, what, what's in the eyes and you need to know what the legs are doing. Um, I, uh, I have a reverence for performance. I used to, I was a, for a long time, I was a, a coach, a springboard diving coach. And I really gained an appreciation and an understanding of how the body works. And when I'm out shooting a race, I, um, the, 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 uh, the concept of, of motion and what people are doing, um, what they're doing with little parts of it. I remember being in the ABC camera van back in 1982, shooting right into Julie Leach's face and watching what she was doing with her eyes and how she was agonizing and trying to talk herself into going a little bit further because really she was about to stop. You know, that's something that you try to bring to the audience through a camera lens. 
it's not easy to do and what you need to be is totally focused it's funny when I had kids um, in my family my wife took over as a photographer because I couldn't photograph my kids because I couldn't watch my kids if I was photographing because I was fo focusing on, <laughs> on, on taking pictures but not watching my kids and I think um, Many times I've realized that I really didn't see what was going on in a race at all because I was focusing on what was going on, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think there's, I think like anything else, uh, writing, racing, doing whatever you do, when you have a great passion, and I had a great passion for taking pictures of people in action, um, that first of all comes through. Uh, and second of all, it's really fulfilling, you know, when that, when that, when those little, those few really great shots come up, boy, it's a great feeling. Mm -hmm. It's a creative convantage, isn't it? Oh, there's nothing, there's nothing like it. I mean, I've got a couple that I, that I took one in Mar of Mark in, in Nice where he had, um, in Nice, France in 1982, um, we we had gotten uh, stuck in the mountains and we're racing back to the finish line and I thought we'd missed the finish and and we were on the uh, the, the promenade d'Anglais uh, in Nice uh, across from the hotel Negresco and and uh, they were they were running along the boardwalk and I saw this big crowd of people and I went oh my god maybe we didn't miss the miss the finish after all and I hopped out of the car grabbed my couple of cameras <clears throat> and Mark was um. Mark fell at that moment, and I grabbed a couple of pictures of him on the ground. He didn't fall straight out. He just stumbled backwards, and his legs were nothing there. And then he stood up, and he tried to run again. And I was, by that time, standing in front of him and walking backwards as Mark was, was coming toward me. And Frank Shorter was there cheering him on, and the crowd was all around him. And, and his, uh, the, the shot I got of him, the one shot that was perfect that I got of him with his eyes, said everything there was to know about Mark Allen. He was not there. But his body was going. This was a guy who would, who could not be stopped, um, it, you know, uh, short of something really drastic. And um, it was one of the best shots I've ever taken. And and it was just that moment of, uh, well, my passion, um, and mostly his courage, um, and then pure luck. You know, being in the right place at the right time. And I'll be darned, that shot was in was in focus. That one, that one shot was was there. So it's a thrill. Yeah, it's a big thrill. Did he go on to win that race, or did he, where did he finish? Didn't win. This was team? about. Um, so this was this was great. Uh, he was fairly close to the finish line at that time. He was about a mile from the finish line, and and finished it, and won, and ended up downstairs in the medical tent. I got a couple of shots of him on the couch, <clears throat> on the cot, you know, in the medical cot. He was out. I mean, he he was he was in serious trouble. And Dave Scott was coming behind him. And what had happened is on the run, they just didn't have enough water. Again, 1982, early days of the sport, um, people didn't understand. And, um, and I remember that same, that same day, I think uh, Tinley was third, and I was there at the finish line. And he looked at me, he said, somebody's going to die out there one of these days. Somebody's just going to die. And then he came up to me a few minutes later. He said, I got to ride this off. He was so angry at what had happened at the race, what had happened to Mark and Dave. He was just hearing about it that uh, he said, I got, I got to go ride this off. Come on, take a ride with me. And after that race, dehydrated as he was, we rode 35 miles up the hills into, you know, through, uh, <laughs> through Monaco and up to the Italian border and then back again. It was pretty crazy. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a, a big day for me just because there was so much happened. Hmm. 
but uh, yeah, he marked one that day. He's pretty pretty uh, pretty amazing. You must have had a pretty interesting insight into the world of, of a pro athlete and, and to watch people grow and develop into themselves over the years. You know, because it sounds like you're pretty much on the pulse, you know, with these athletes all the time. So, what was it like watching, you know, someone like a, a Mark Allen or a Dave Scott or a Tinley or, or anybody really as they came into the sport and to see what they turned into as as people as they evolved further and further in the time in the sport. It was it was fascinating. Um, <clears throat> I've never really written about this. Um, um, I think Matt Fitzgerald tried to do it in his book, um, but it was amazing. I, I you know with the big four in those days, uh, you know Alan uh, Scott, um, Dave Scott, and and Scott Molina. Um, each of them had a distinctly different personality that helped them do what they did, um, and and helped them do um, what they did better than anything. Uh, Tinley, I always remember, was the guy who was thinking all the time and probably thinking too much for his own good. He was the only guy that could talk himself out of winning a race. Um, and I would say that he was sitting right here, you know, because as tough a competitor as he was, what Scott really loved was the journey, not so much the race. And yeah. he would get to the point in the middle of a race and go, what the hell am I doing out here? This is not fun. And for him, the fun part of it was working his tail off in training, working as hard as he could and getting to the starting line. And the rest of it was... Although he was a fierce, fierce competitor, there were those little things in him that, that I think probably prevented him from being even better than he was. And he was magnificent. With Dave Scott, uh, you know, we got on the course, he'd bite your leg off if you got in front of him. Um, <laughs> you know, he was a fierce guy. And uh, Molina, kind of the same, but, 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 but almost a little cocky about it. Um, <laughs> kind of a wonderful... Uh, you know, I got a shot of Molina with this little Mona Lisa smile on that is so typically Scott. There's always something going on that's sort of like, he's really not taking it all that seriously, but I'm still going to kick your butt. Yeah. And um, uh, there was a mischievous about a mischievousness about the way he raced. That was wonderful. And then Alan was um, somewhere else. I mean, you know, Alan was the only guy I knew that went out in the middle of the highway at, you know, at night before the race and prayed to the gods and believed it. And and who knows if he was right? It sure worked out for him. You know, he was a uh, he was a he was a thinker. So they. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, with, sorry. with Mark Helen, you know, like the, the, the Iron War, you know, the gods and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, was he? Was that a shift in that moment, or was he already in that place for ten years before that? Or like, you know, like obviously he found what he found eventually, but was you know, like, was there a shift in him around that? Um. I think that Mark took a long time understanding um, the, the, both, both his talent and the limits to his talent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Mark just raced. He was so good, and, and he raced so hard. And when he was on, he was on. And when he was a little off, he could take himself over the edge. I'm not sure that, um, that until later in his career that Mark had a sense standing at the finish line, at the starting line, what it took to get to the finish line. You know, the overall race. Some people have a natural instinct. It's hot. I need to go slower here, speed up there. I think Mark kind of took his, he was so, uh, not vicious, but, but he was so dedicated to the racing part of things that, that he would forget. And he would ride away from people and then suddenly realize that that really hadn't been a very good idea. And I, took him a, I, took, I think it took him a long time to understand how to race. And I think it was significant that when he finally beat Dave, he beat Dave by, on a good, when they were both having good days, he, he beat Dave by basically running Dave Scott's race. Mm. Um, 
I mean, I, I recall that marathon well, and I was in the tower. I was, I was just dying because I couldn't see the race because I was announcing that year. Um, but I had so many people tell me, and my wife, Kathleen, was on the course giving me splits, and I was looking at my splits going, you got to be kidding me. They can't be running this fast. And, and Mark ran the whole race. Um, you know, inside of Dave so that he would get to the aid station first and Dave would have to slow down and go behind him and grab the water and, and waste all that energy. And Mark knew what he was doing. You can't tell me to this day that he didn't know exactly what he was doing. And he broke Dave in the very spot that Dave broke everybody else. Hmm. 99 mile mark, base of a little hill going up <clears throat> and you head back into town. That was the spot that Mark broke Dave. He ran Dave's race and he ran it better than Dave did. And I just think that he was a uh, not only a student of his own body and mind, but it took him a while to sort of tone it down and, and dial it back and understand how he raced. Uh, I just I think that's you know um, he was he was scary good from the beginning. Um, <laughs> he just needed to understand how. It's almost like a great racehorse, you know. You just got to learn how to run him. Yeah. And Mark learned how to run himself over the years, you know. So, so you you had a big involvement there, you know, through through the eighties by the sound of it. But I know I've read that you went off and sort of did uh, worked in the in the restaurant industry for for a while. Yeah. Did you c- completely sort of take yourself out of the sport, or were you just you know was it just your career and you still followed triathlon uh, outside of uh, you know your nine to five? Yeah, it was kind of funny. Um, uh, I was I was mostly a journalist, and when the when we had kids. Uh, when our first, when Kathy and my first baby came, um, riding in multi-sport <laughs> was not, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a lot of money there. And, um, and I was branching out and writing about other things and writing for bigger magazines. But it was still tough. You know, you'd, you'd establish a relationship with an editor and then the editor would move to another magazine and then the new guy would come in and have his own people. And um, she, you know, we basically just had this heart-to-heart talk one day and said, you know, what are we going to do? Are we going to move to some small little cabin in the woods and you're going to keep riding? Or are we going to raise a family in Southern California? And um, so the more than anything, by far more than anything, it was a financial decision. It was a decision to get out of journalism and um, <coughs> excuse me, get out of journalism and, um, and work. And I'm the type of guy that, um, I, I mean, you know, I'm an endurance athlete. I throw myself hard into everything I do. Mm-hmm. And I threw myself hard into... Um, into the restaurant business and into several businesses after that and now I've got my own business and um, you know reconnecting a little bit but um, uh, yeah it was just it's just one of those things you know it wasn't that I walked away because I was upset with it or anything else I think I had done pretty much everything that I could do I think I got to the point where you know I'd, I'd been to the top um, you know I'd done all the television and wrote the books and done all that stuff and I looked around and I went wow there's not a whole lot here Mm. And when was that, roughly? Oh, it was you know right around uh, 1990, right right around you know the end of the 80s. Is that at that whole first generation of triathlon was mm. ending, and then you know the Europeans were starting to come in and kick butt at the Ironman, and yeah. and the you know the Aussies were, uh, you guys were, I mean you know the Aussies were just killing everybody. I remember I just was rereading an article I wrote about the World Championships in in Disney World, and you know the, the Aussie Welsh, men just crushed yeah. everybody. Yeah, that was the you know that that now was changing, and I I, don't, I think it was changing for the better. It was great to see the sport go international, but suddenly the guys I knew that were kind of stepping back, and and the new guys were coming in, and I, I guess I guess maybe I just felt it was time to sort of I did my part, and uh, now let's move on, you know. 
We, oh, we often talk about, you know, to the pros, you know, you know what's it like when you leave, you know, and, 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 you know, this was your kind of focus on life. And so was there a, a sense of regret or did, was there kind of a, you, you know, as you kind of moved into a different world and I'm sure you were focused on what you're doing, was there a sense of loss in life? Um, I don't know that there was an, an active sense of life, a loss, except when I went back to it. Um, uh, okay. And then I realized how much I'd lost. I went back once, I think it was 1990, maybe 1991, where we did a live, I did, um, we did live blogging from the, from the Ironman uh, on the race um, for a triathlon, inside triathlon. And um, uh, that was a great experience. I hadn't been back to the Ironman in, in several years. Um, and now I get that same thing. When I, when I go to a race and I see all these old friends of mine, uh, yeah, there, there is a palpable sense of loss, but not when I'm working. You know, it's like just when you go back, you go, God, mm-hmm. these, these were, you know, these my, as I said before, these are my best friends uh, ever. So, uh, yeah, so it was, uh, those are good, I mean, those are good days. You know, we, looking back, you have, um, a lot of us have the distinct feeling that we actually help make a sport, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, you know. So when you you look back now, you know it's it's 2012, and it's sort of been around about 20, just over 20 years since you sort of moved in direction. I mean, are you happy with the direction the sport's gone? Do you like what you see? Um, What what would you rather see happening? No, I think it's terrific to tell you the truth. I, I, I do. I mean, uh, you, you, you know, the Olympic Games, and I think they solved the whole drafting issue great. I think the, the ITU did a terrific job of that. I know some people are, uh, you know, probably that's still a controversy, but there was such a huge deal in my day, and, you know, drafting ruins so many races. I, I, I'm, I think they've done a nice job in sort of formatting it correctly. I mean, I think, uh, uh, I, I, I frankly love where it is. Um, I think the one thing. Uh, the one thing I don't like is um, I see, um, well, a couple of things. First of all, I don't think there's a sense of history. I don't think people feel connected or, or really care about where it all started. Mm-hmm. And that may be changing now. We're changing and, it right uh, here yeah, today, Mike. It's, it's, yeah. it's great. I'm glad. <laughs> so I'm so glad you are. And, and, um, and then I read some of these newsletters and blogs that I get, and, and there's, a, um, uh, there's, a, there's a very um, – it's still a very self-centered sport. It's mm-hmm. still all about me. It's all about my equipment. It's all about this. It's all about that. It's not really about, uh, how do I say this? It's not, it's, it's not about the sport. It's not about what happens. It's not appreciation for everybody out there. I mean, you know, somebody's doing an Ironman race in 15 hours. you got to be kidding me. That, that's hard. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know that people appreciate um, how difficult really in context of, of everything, how difficult this sport is and how uh, gritty it is and, 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 and really how, how close the connection is to the early days. Uh, it's, it's, so I think sometimes I see people who are, you know, they're driving around with a 70.3 you know, sticker on the back of their car and, and, um, and they've done all the right things and they got all the right equipment and they're, they're getting to the finish line, good for them. They don't really have a sense of what the sport is. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah, mm. totally. You know, and that's the, that's the only thing. The rest of it, I just think it's fantastic. And I just can't believe these races are selling out like in 15 minutes. I mean, who would have thought, right? Exactly. Uh, I, I mean, I remember talking to guys that thought they'd die if they did an Ironman. You know, they thought <laughs> literally you could kill them. I remember those days. But, and now it's like everybody and, you know, everybody and his uncle. It's pretty neat. It's pretty cool. Well, I like it. 
But yeah. we, you know, like if you if you say that you know, and in, in, in its nature, our sport does draw, um, you know, the single-minded kind of a little bit selfish. You know, the sport does kind of put you in that place. Uh, so if you know if that's the problem of now, what would you think would be solutions that would shift that energy towards it, maybe helping people understand that better? Well, you know, I think. Um, uh, I, I, I get a sense that people have forgotten that, that I know this is going to sound stupid with everybody doing the Ironman races, the 70.3s and the full Ironman races. It sounds a little bit stupid, but I get a sense that a lot of folks don't understand how hard this, supports, this, this sport is supposed to be. You know, not everything is going to be the way you want it on it on a given day. Um, mm. You know, the weather is going to be terrible. Um, you're going to have a terrible day. You're going to get down to the basics of what it always used to be, which is getting to the start from the start to the finish line and getting there any way you can, including crawling. You know, and I've I've gotten a sense sometimes that people feel it needs to be a little bit too perfect. Mm. Uh, you know, there's everything sort of accommodates you getting to the finish line. And I'm not going to say that I, I don't think people should wear wetsuits because I think they've saved a lot of lives and it's a great thing. But when I go to some of these small triathlons here out here on the West Coast and you see guys going to water without wetsuits, I kind of silently kind of go, yeah, way to go. Because we didn't have wetsuits. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the water was 57 degrees and you just went out and swam. And there was only one reason for that. It's because you were doing a triathlon and nobody expected to be anything but ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And if there wasn't traffic control, you made your way around it. Mm. All of those are good things. We need to have great traffic control and great races and wetsuits and all the safety that we do now. I think it's really good. But I think there needs to be um, a little – I sense that there's not a pride in is – not a pride in it as if, if all those things were gone. If suddenly you didn't have a helmet and you had a bike off the garage of wall and you only had you know, like old Ked sneakers, you could still get through it, you know? Mm. And I – Probably sounding like a really old guy when I just say that. So, no, no, that touches a note, eh? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Your involvement these days? Um, are you just an observer, or are you still involved? I know you've got your um, your company that does sort of the the promotional tents and materials and stuff like that. But tell us about yep. what you do these days. Well, um, th- that keeps me involved. You know, we, we are working with more and more multi-sport events and marathons. Um, you know, we did the tents and the banners and the flags and all that kind of stuff. And, and um, you know, the fact that I've got the production experience and the event experience really helps uh, me in that business. But I'm still doing a little, uh, a little announcing. Uh, a few years ago, Bill Leach, who was one of the pioneers of the sport, um, uh, his wife, Julie, won the Ironman in 82 in October. Uh, Olympic kayaker, great guy, good friend. Um, a former triathlete uh, asked me to announce uh, his two triathlons here in Southern California. Um, uh, Maca actually did did the race the first year, and um, and I was happy to do it. And so now I'm sort of announcing here and there, mm-hmm. just for fun. And uh, it I do get just as big a thrill now as I ever did. I mean, I I really did enjoy the announcing. I I felt I was really good at it. I put a lot of passion into it. I was a I was a great fan of everybody who crossed the finish line. You know, I was a, I was a good triathlon fan. So, um, uh, that's so we're we're increasingly involved, and and uh, you know, I've kept up a close association with Scott Tinley. We've got a couple of projects we're doing, and so um, yeah, it's been fun. And I and I am still involved, although peripherally. Just one, you know, have you, over the years when you weren't kind of necessarily actively involved in the sport, did you still keep an eye on the sport? Um, not that much. You know, it was, it was, uh, yeah, you kind of had to watch it pretty closely uh, because the, the names are changing so quickly. Gosh, you know, I used to, 
my goodness, I not only knew the names, I used to know the hometowns and the birth dates, yeah. and, you know, the, yep. the, the girlfriend's names. It was stupid. <laughs> um, so I think once that stopped, it was, it was too hard to keep track. So I think I kept a general track. I mean, I understood what IT was doing. It was cool to see the Olympic, you know, the sport in the Olympic Games. But um, uh, now I feel a little bit less competent when I go out to a race to announce because I haven't really kept up. So no, not, not as much as, uh, I won't say as I should because there's no should there, but... Um, I would probably like to be a little bit more knowledgeable about who's racing how. I think it would be fun to get out to the races and watch them the way I used to, which is from the press truck where, you know, you got to see them from three feet away, which is pretty neat, you know. Mm. So. In regards to, like, the pros, you know, like, if you, if you look at a pro nowadays, how do you think the pro athlete has evolved from, you know, from, you know, your period from pretty much 80 to 90? You know, if you look at what the pros are like nowadays, do you think they've evolved in what ways have they evolved or you know what what would be the differences that you see in a pro nowadays oh. I, I think like I think like any sport I don't think triathlon is any different I think oh, what's happened is incredible the evolution of the individual athlete as better trained um, better equipped um, faster uh, stronger uh, you know it, it, some of it is mindset I, I've been an athlete long enough to realize that you know, when you consider something fast and then suddenly you're over here and you're no longer fast, now your whole mindset changes. And so you go faster because now you're comparing yourself to a different standard. But I think even considering that, when I go back and look at the times and look at the mentality of the way people raced, again, you talk about milestones. Look what Mark and Dave did at Iron War when they suddenly ran the 245 marathon that Dave Scott had been saying was possible all along. Well, now that's that's kind of what you got to do to stay there. I'm not saying it's still not a very fast race, but I think what's happened in triathlon is the same thing that's happened in baseball and hockey and all this stuff. People have gotten bigger and faster and stronger and better and more knowledgeable. And I think it's fantastic. I, I uh, um, man, I mean, I, I watch these people race now and it's just really hard to believe with how good they are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's great to watch. I mean, that, that's one thing that would make me want to get back and start covering again because I'd like to see this new level of performance up close, you know? Awesome. Well, Mike, you said earlier that um, one thing that's lacking in the sport is, is the history, and, and I love getting guys like yourself on here to to sort of tell us what it was like in those early days, because when I do my research, it's, there's, there's not a lot out there in terms of no, there's really not. in the no. 70s and 80s. You know, the internet's full of, of hell of a lot of useful stuff from probably mid-90s on, but from the 80s and early 90s, it's, it's pretty limited. So thank you for um, helping bring us up to speed on, on the things that you were involved with and, and really just looking at where the, the birthplace of the sport was in, in San Diego. Mm. Well, I'm really happy. Um, thanks, thanks for your interest and, and thanks for your time. Uh, you know, anything I can do, it'd be, uh, I'm, I'm honored. Brilliant. Great. Thanks, thanks Mike. Thanks. I remember, remember, John, as we just, you guys would have heard the interviews now, but I remember our first big interview with Scott Molina. Where Karen mm-hmm. Balance was number one, mm-hmm. and then we got Melina. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we've got Scott Melina. Yeah. And I was pretty excited. And he came into our, our studios, which is my bedroom back in those days. <laughs> one Remember? microphone. One microphone between three of us. <laughs> and he left, and it, was, it didn't record properly. It was all crusty. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I spent, I probably spent 24 hours trying to tidy it up. Yeah. And I, it, like I improved it by 5%. Yeah. And I was heartbroken <laughs> I was because and it was a great because Melina is always a great interview yeah and I was absolutely heartbroken yeah broke my heart those early days of equipment yeah so 
Anyway, John, uh, let's wrap things up. Let's say thank you to our patrons. We're not naming names today because it's just kind of getting through the Christmas period. But if you are a patron, thank you for being a patron. If you want to support the show, go to www.imtalk.me. Other than that, John. Coaching tip for the week is when you go and do open water swimming, add some structure to it. I'm open water swimming for the next couple of weeks. And yeah, a lot of you guys might be going away on holiday in different places and you just get in the water and you just swim in the open water. Try to add some structure. So get your watch put it on um, auto lap and, and and change your intensity, do some short stuff, some longer stuff uh, and mix it all up rather than just open water swimming, which a lot of people just do. They just get in there and swim, spice it up. When you do that, do you go out and back or do you just kind of do a long swim with some reps in it? Um, a bit of both, but we've up, up in Kaiteri, we've got some some swim boys so we can do sort of little triangle laps and stuff like that. So yeah. a bit of, bit of everything. Spice it up. Okay, John, let's rip it up. I'm Russ. I'm Train hard. Train smart. Kick, Kick hard. hard.